Hi and welcome to the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month we're doing something a little bit different. I've taken segments out of each interview over our first year and stitched them together into a retrospective podcast. I hope you enjoy and check out the other podcasts for a full-length interview with those people. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash machine ethics and find us at machine-ethics.net. This year we've seen the continued debate on machine ethics from people like Google and Facebook, Elon Musk, getting together to talk about massive issues to do with artificial intelligence and some, I think, even scaremongering. We've seen a huge commercial rise of home assistants like the Amazon Echo with the Google Home. And we can see the proliferation of AI within industry and also in the public realm. Thanks and I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sure. Hi. Uh, so my name is Nick Reed. I'm uh, director of the Academy at TRL, and that's the, the kind of branch of TRL that is responsible for coordinating innovation and science across the business. Um, but my background is in psychology. In 2010, Google announced they were working on their self-driving car. And suddenly you think, okay, this is this is real now, this is serious, and, and it's something that addresses all those topics I've been working on. Um, would enable people to, uh, you know, be distracted, use their mobile phones when driving, um, and potentially save a lot of lives. So, you know, having enormous data sets and the computing power and, and processing power to, to analyze enormous data sets um, is enabling neural network and machine learning algorithms to become um, more and more successful. So you know, Facebook and facial recognition programs, those kind of things are just getting incredibly powerful. Um, speech recognition is becoming um, ever more naturalistic in, in the way it works. So having these enormous data sets and, and the processing power and, and storage of them means we can start to overcome some of the um, more challenging tasks for AI. And one of those things is, is of course, driving. Uh, so a genetic algorithm is one where it uh, is modified and mutated over several, uh, over you know, thousands of generations to produce an, an optimized network that has gives you the best performance. And uh, yeah, there's, they've shown lots of promise in uh, in being able to solve uh, complex problems. That's the the, the, the simplest way to frame it. Um, However, yes. <laughs> that, that phrase in itself it has, uh, do, do, do I mean minimize harm for the occupant? Do I mean minimize overall harm? Do I minimize harm to the network? So if I have one type of crash, it means the road gets blocked for 10 hours. And mm -hmm. uh, if not, it's one hour. You know, lots of different ways of, of framing the problem. On automated cars, um, there's lots of different companies. And all their algorithms might be slightly different, producing different sorts of reactions. Do you, do you know anything about that? Uh, yeah, no, I'm not sure. I, I have seen um, anyone making data, shared data, data available, um, freely available and shared. Um, I could imagine it happening, you know, things like um, Google releasing the, the TensorFlow um, machine learning algorithms for, for use by um, any users or registered users. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, there, there's, there's value in the data, right? So um, Facebook and the, the facial recognition algorithms, they, uh, they, they probably protect that um, for themselves. Um, and until they're well ahead, they probably wouldn't release that to be uh, used by anyone else. So, um, point. Uh, and it's quite hard to interrogate um, the rule set, effectively, of the algorithm. Um, 
and and for for driving it, it would be impossible to do that you you, yeah. you couldn't program a vehicle to to know how to deal with every single combination of journey traffic conditions pedestrians weather um there's essentially infinite variation so it has to be based on machine learning algorithms um so you're always stuck with that there that um challenge in understanding why it chose a particular course of action i mean in an ideal world it would be millions because you don't want a particularly dogmatic system which you sent out and realize you know a couple of years down the road that there's this particular instance that it always gets wrong and you have lots of things always going wrong in that particular instance you want it to you want it to be as safe as possible but then also carry on learning i guess um i would have thought would you agree uh, i definitely agree and that is happening now so um, tesla collecting data from their autopilot system yep. and updating the software based on on its performance yeah Well, uh, thanks for inviting me on the show. I have been thinking about artificial intelligence most of my life uh, because I read lots of science fiction when I was growing up and, and since. And I started thinking about it particularly after I read one of Kurtzweil's books. I think that's, I've got that in common with a lot of people. The one that uh, woke me up was um, Are We Spiritual Machines in 1999? And... The reason why that woke me up is I'd always thought that there would be machines that were smarter than humans. And uh, I think I'd read quite a few stories where the machines combined with humans, and that seemed like a good plan. But mm. I was assumed that it would be um, centuries or thousands of years away. And Kurtzweil's book made me think, wow, this might happen in my lifetime or my and we or are the next generation towards a different kind of economics, an economics yeah. of, of abundance. That's if we get it right. Sure. I think if we if we get to the point when a large minority or a majority of people can no longer do paid work because nothing they can do can't be done, nothing that they could do for money can't be done better, cheaper and faster by machines, yep. we will at the very least need a universal basic income. But I don't think that's enough. A universal basic income could be a way of adjusting capitalism to deal with automation. Sure. But if, if we get it right, then... Lots of goods and services will become so cheap they'll be virtually free because because they're automated and and the the investment in the robots and the machines can be quickly amortized um, and and then the market economy becomes perhaps irrelevant or perhaps dangerous, mm. and we will probably need a new type of economy and we don't know what it is oh for sure you know the the risks of a superintelligence getting it wrong, misunderstanding what what humans meant when they said, for instance improve human welfare as, as, as much as you can. You know, maybe we gave that as its goal. And it thinks, okay, well, crossing the road is pretty dangerous for you guys, so I'm going to lock you all into coffins and feed you the um, nutrients you need and the, and, and the, uh, the, the oxygen you need in, in, intravenously and just keep you all very safe. And we'd hate that, but it, <laughs> it, might, not, it might not get it. But it'd be optimising given that um, question that we've asked it. Exactly. So the, the, the possibility of um, unexpected consequences is, is, is grave. Well, yeah, using I think, this tool. You know, I, th I think we're really at the early stages. I don't think we're beginning... I don't think we're really seeing much machine intelligence automation yet. Automation's been going on since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and before. Yeah. Uh, but and the Luddites had something to say about that at yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and new jobs were invented... Uh, new forms of old jobs were invented 
and it didn't lead to long-term secular unemployment. Uh, what actually happened was economic activity increased, wealth increased, and that that led to more jobs and, and more wealth. Yeah. Um, it may be different this time. I think it is different this time because this time the machines are replacing our brain capabilities, not just our, our, lab, our sort of manual labor capabilities. Sure. So I, uh, prior to medicine, um, studied psychology and my background basically lies within the design of um, new technologies in healthcare. So I'm particularly interested in the interface between um, machines and technology and the way humans behave. And that pertains to whether it's just a simple app for people kind of helping behavior change and helping patients and people adhere to medicines to whether it's um, introducing new forms of intelligent algorithm or decision support into how doctors work and how that changes their behavior. The hospital I work in at the moment uh, has 19 different software programs throughout the whole hospital, none of which communicate. Mm. So, of course, when presented with a new solution for to help doctors communicate or to task manage or to prioritize the hospital is not interested because they've got too many already and you know none of the doctors want to be logging into another bit of software the other um so the problem that you know i see day to day is just is just the fact that everything is cripplingly slow because of poor lines of communication um and and poor technology I think that the medical profession is very slow to change and and that is a criticism of them. But I think also there is good reason for that because it is very, very different. It's a very different context. So um, there's an interesting anecdote someone uh, gave the other day, which was of a a gentleman who was admitted to A&E and had a a cardiac arrest and um, Mr. A&E and, you know, treated, but unfortunately he died. Right. And his family, uh, he was wearing an Apple Watch, I think it was, or a Fitbit, or so, I can't remember which mm. device. And his family obtained the data on that. And the data showed that his heart had stopped six hours before the doctors said it had. And the family were trying to use that to claim that he hadn't been treated properly, which the problem is, is that, the, you know, the data from these devices is not reliable um, yeah. at all. There's um, a digital health consultant called Manish uh, Gineja who's who's been wearing, you know, all of them at once. And he's found massive discrepancies between what they actually show. Um, and so the real world implications of this data are... It, you know, a serious, and I think that we need to 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 take it into account. And um, you know, I, I don't I don't necessarily think the regulations are. I think it's very difficult to get technologies into healthcare, but I don't necessarily think that's because of the actual safety regulations. I think often yeah. that's because of the organisational change that has to go about and how you have to basically compete with incumbents on 10-year legacy contracts and all those kind of things. There, there are many other reasons, not just the regulatory reasons. Um, the problem is, is that there isn't software doesn't have an implicit ethical apart from the data security side. Isn't there isn't an implicit ethical code? You know, doctors are trained from from day one um, under the Hippocratic Oath yep. and have a very strong, very 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 strong ethical code um, in, you know, embedded into them. And and with software and um, the development of AI and uh, all kinds of aspects, but there isn't really that implicit in it. And I don't think there is in the medical profession. I don't think there are the right people with the right training to do this. So we have clinical informatics doctors and we have you know, IT departments. Yep. I think that the IT departments are traditional IT departments I mean, um, and, and, and the doctors in 
clinical informatics tend to be quite traditional doctors who are consultants who've you know become a consultant in a specific area of medicine and then you know obtain this this other aspect as a, as a kind of addition and so i think we really need to focus on creating a whole new breed of people maybe a specialism a clinical informatics make it make it proper specialism to have that understanding of both sides of the coin and the ethics and the and the thought processes that need to go into mm. um this this field because if healthcare is going to be owned and operated by software we need to have the right people to to make that happen and i don't think doctors alone are and i don't think the tech companies alone are Okay, uh, my name is Lydia Nicholas. I, uh, I suppose the shortest title I ever give everyone is that I'm a digital anthropologist. Um, I mostly work in areas where uh, technology, data, human bodies and identity kind of meet and squish together. Uh, so at the moment I am four days a week at Nesta, the UK's innovation charity, uh, where I work as a senior researcher in collective intelligence. I mean, one of the problems with that is that you end up with privacy being a privilege, which is right. already a problem in a lot of places. Yeah. I, the idea that if you're receiving benefits, then you're under a lot more surveillance. If you're in a disadvantaged community, you're in a lot more surveillance. And so that means that more data is made about you in all of these cases, which yeah. means you're more likely to encounter more surveillance and more discrimination. And that goes on and on and on. Right, right, right. So existing kind of norms like yeah. we know that when people use online dating sites and now about like a third of marriages in the u.s uh, started on an online dating site and that's including all the people that got married before online dating sites existed so like the stats are yeah. insane like the, you know the robot apocalypse is already here they're breeding us in you know they're, they're already doing that we know that uh relationships that start on online dating sites across the world, so whether you're using shardy.com or okcupid, mm. are going to be more aligned with... Kind of, you're going to pick people of the same race, the same caste, the same like economic level. Like People don't meet and cross kind of those sorts of yeah. divides. They don't meet haphazardly and fall in love and is that just blur the, and bend those things. Is that just because the algorithms have found that that's the case it's, or that it's there's weights in place that we've put I mean in, in that kind of case it's it's a mix because it's yeah. partly that people are a lot more judgmental and narrow-minded when they're clicking boxes than yeah. when they're meeting people in real life so a lot of that is people making that decision yeah but uh yeah but yeah. there are there are these systems are getting smarter and smarter and so I, I worry about that I worry about things entrenching social divides yeah and Deepening norms. So I like I, I think quite a bit about the properties that information has that we don't see or talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, so you might think about the fact that a numerical bit of information is more certain, is more valuable mm -hmm. than a paragraph describing the same phenomena. Yeah. Uh, and this is part of this kind of wider thing of the idea that information that is more liquid. Well, which is a sort of term you borrow from finance. You want liquid assets that move through systems more easily. Information right. that is more liquid is more valuable because it can be uh, assessed at all sorts of different scales. It can be like you know recontextualized in all mm. sorts of different graphs and visualizations and, and compare. You know, you can compare yeah. test results at kind of the individual level, at the class level, the school, the university, that the country, the the world, and so all of these things make it like push us towards 
a world where everything is datified and everything that can't be put down in numbers mm. gets ignored. It's just it's just about approaching it from a point of view which has social justice at the core, I think. And you know, there is some hope. There is some hope. Yeah. That's a that's a beautiful line. We'll finish there. Well, hello. Uh, my name is Lucy McCormick, and I am a barrister specialising in product liability, and I work from Henderson Chambers. I have a particular interest in driverless cars um, and other kinds of technology as well, but mostly driverless cars. And I'm very excited because I've recently been commissioned to write the very first book on uh, the law and driverless cars. In a way, they're philosophically the two different ways of approaching driverless cars. Do you build a driverless car from the ground up? and design it to always be driverless and to be fully driverless? Or do you go, which is the Google model, or do you go the Tesla route and say, well, I'm going to sell you a normal, albeit quite premium car, and then I'm gradually going to update it with little bits of technology that you can choose to download that make it more and more intelligent and more able to handle itself. And so I really just see it as a, a very evolving process, and particularly applied to cars, because um, the first bit of what you might call artificial intelligence in cars came along in the 1950s, and that was cruise control. Mm, yeah. Then in the 1990s, you get adaptive cruise control, which is where the cruise control doesn't just go at 70, but it keeps a set distance from the car ahead of you. And then by the 2000s, you start adding in little extra features like uh, lane-keeping assistance, where you're not just um, keeping the distance from the car ahead of you, but it's stopping you wobble, wobbling within your lane. And then right up to the present day, so earlier this year, a Mercedes E-Class was launched, uh, which is not just capable of the cruise control and the lane keeping and the blind spot spotting, but it can automatically overtake. And so I think artificial intelligence to me is an incredibly cumulative process. And it's just going to keep, um, keep moving forward until we get to full automation. Obviously, the government has engaged with this slightly further. And so in July last year, it issued a code of practice for the testing of driverless cars. Now, that doesn't have any legal status. It's not a law, it's not a regulation, mm. but then neither is the highway code. And if you break that, you'll be in real trouble if someone does sue you. Mm. So there's this distinction between something being officially a law and not doing something being negligence. And that code of practice is quite short and it's quite readable. And if you're interested, I, I suggest you, you do go and look mm. it up. Um, because what it recommends, and these are very strong recommendations, and if you break them, you're going to be in trouble, is, first of all, that you probably ought to have done some prior testing on closed roads. Sensible enough. Mm -hmm. Secondly, as we've discussed, that you have to have a driver present. Thirdly, that you have to have a clear way of switching between manual mode and automatic mode, and you need to be able to take back control very, very quickly. And fourthly, it has to have a black box of some kind to record if it does all go horribly wrong, so lessons can be learnt. And uh, finally, and this is my absolute favourite bit about the code of practice, is it warns test drivers that they have to be conscious of their appearance when they're driving the cars and they must maintain normal gaze direction because people are going to be incredibly wigged out if they see someone, this car going along with yeah. someone you know, reading a book it's just not something we're used to on the roads. And, yeah. and if you're a cyclist, for example, you, you rely on making eye contact with drivers and seeing where they're looking to see if they've spotted you. 
if you if you took uh, a new city, if you made a new Milton Keynes mm. or something, and you just made the stipulation that there was going to be a lane on all roads which was closed off, which was driverless cars, then mm. quite quickly yeah. we can make this happen, you know, yeah. um, I think. And I think insurance will get more expensive to, as it, as driving becomes more of a hobby, insurance will get mm. more and more expensive for people and you, you'll have to make the choice at some point whether you keep, and, and we're talking probably 50 years in the future, but you'll have to make the point, the choice whether you keep paying for insurance for you to drive, a little bit like whether you pay to have your partner who's had several crashes and is quite expensive to insure on your car. You'll have to decide whether to insure yourself to drive your own car or just let drive yourself. Yeah. yeah, I think uh, we're there. Uh, so thanks very much, Lucy, for your, all your time, your knowledge and your expertise. Well, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, hi. Uh, my name is Matthew Channon. Um, I am a co-author of the book Law and Driverless Cars to be published in 2018. Um, I'm a PhD candidate in law at the University of Exeter and also a teaching fellow in law at the University of Southampton. When, when you think about all of these things, that the law is going to have a lot of adaptation to do. It's going to have to adapt a lot to all of this new area of artificial intelligence, driverless cars, drones, unmanned ships. It, it's going to have to adapt in such a way it's going to be a, a legal nightmare at times, I think. And so for me, when I think about it, I think about the regulatory aspects of it. I think, well, we're going to have to adapt ourselves. We're going to have to adapt our thinking, our knowledge, especially with these sort of areas like drones and driverless cars. You've got to kind of adapt the public perception as well. The public are, will be quite, they're quite scary things, these are. There's no doubt, really, that automated vehicles are brilliant for the economy, for everything. I mean, it's going to save a lot. It's going to save a lot of lives. People aren't going to be, um, you know, there's, there's not going to be as many people dying on the roads. That's the first fantastic thing. Right. Yeah. It's also going to ensure that there's a lot of money to be saved. It's also just fantastic for the economy. It's fantastic for emergency services because it means that you're going to have less people being injured. Yeah. I mean, that the, the ecological issue is the big one, um, which is, I mean, that's a big advantage of driverless cars is the fact that they're, they're going to have less um, issues with the the emissions, it's going to be, you know, a lot of the issues, I mean, a lot of the big backlogs on road at the moment is driver braking, a driver unnecessarily braking. With these automated vehicles, you don't have that. So you're going to, everything's just going to be, you know, the whole um, emissions and everything's going to be excellent with these vehicles. And I think, you know, normal vehicles, conventional vehicles, one of the big issues is the fact that they are very bad for the environment. Well, obviously, you see these films, mm -hmm. iRobot. There gets to a point when you when these robots, etc., they, if you give them too much you know, and, and they they, they start to make decisions for themselves, it, it does seem if you do watch some of these these films, it's quite scary. You know, robots taking over the world. I don't think that's going to happen, but you've also got to be quite careful with it. You do have to be quite careful with exactly what we, you know, what we program these machines to do. And with these driverless cars, especially, you are lit, you are pretty much programming them to kill, if you think about it, because they're going to have to make these ethical decisions. Hello, my name is Sam Hill. I'm one of the co-founders of Pan Studio, and we're a interaction design studio. We do a lot of experiential design, uh, and a lot of our work takes place in the game design space or installation design space. We do a lot of stuff in the public realm. And a lot of that focuses around 
AI in a sense. Uh, we we create creatures quite a lot. We 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 make narratives that have interactive things in them that often need to be represented in some way by an AI. This future vision of robots, you know, it's very the kind of the Jetsons view or the I say Star Wars, obviously we all know that Star Wars occurs in the past, but you know, this vision of these disembodied robots kind of rolling around the place, like bouncing into each other and and with their own personalities and doing their own thing, seems very counter now to what we're seeing is the evolving state of of AI and robotics, which is this giant, singular, disembodied intelligence. A huge part of gaming is about simulation and you know it's it must be the the one of the biggest applications of ai altogether is is creating these these bots and creatures that uh the user interacts with often in a very violent way Mm. and it, it kind of reminds me of these that story that was hovering around a couple of years ago about someone left a quake 3 arena server running i'm glad it wasn't just me who read that that's a good <laughs> one yeah someone left a, a quake 3 server running with bots playing against each other allegedly and uh, found it again several years later entered the game and the the robots had stopped killing each other and they just they just stopped in in their tracks and when the when the player entered the room, the the bots watched it, watched him and followed him around, but didn't shoot him until, out of curiosity, he shot one of them, and then the robots all killed him instantly, and the game crashed. But yeah, God, I don't know what is. I, th- I think I suppose the the potential for immersive gaming definitely is good. You know, that's mm. I, th- I think there's exciting stuff there. Every time you see. Um, you know, a swarm of zombies or a crowd of soldiers or, you know, large amounts of simulated systems working in a way that just seems so real that it's haunting that I like. I like that. I think that's interesting. I think that's a good backdrop for doing gaming. Something magical happens when you see uh, lots of things working in unison or working at the same time. I think that's, Mm. you know, when you see that kind of level of chaos. Yeah, I'm a lecturer in human geography. I have quite an interdisciplinary background, so uh, most of my work is concerned with technology in various ways. I'm basically a failed artist who became a social scientist. My first degree was in digital art, and then um, I was a web developer, and then I got funding to go back to university. I basically pursued a line of thinking about the ways in which we tell stories about the future around technology. What is artificial intelligence? Right. <laughs> um, to you, I mean... What? Yeah, what's an, it's a discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a way in which um, different kinds of people tell stories uh, more or less about themselves through a kind of refraction of the machine. So you can think about, you know, back to short stories in the kind of late 19th, early 20th century mm-hmm. by people like E.M. Forster and H.G. Wells. Yeah. I think Forster's Machines, The Machine Stops is a really kind of interesting sort of take on these kinds of things. It, it, it more or less begins to tell the kinds of stories that we're familiar with now about particular kinds of um, extra-human agency mm-hmm. of 
something that is a machine um, that becomes a kind of quasi-religious entity. Um, so in many ways, I think AI tells us more about the ways in which we conceive of our own intelligence and ideas of mind and yeah. various other kinds of things than it does about anything that we might actually make with the word algorithm. Sure. Say. So for example, you know, we often hear phrases like Google's algorithm or yeah. Facebook's algorithm yeah. that singularizes this idea of there's this one uh, thing, which of course is essentially saying... Google and Facebook do magic. <laughs> yes. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, They're yeah. not saying that actually these are complex organizations that engage in all sorts of kinds of work, yeah. um, that have um, different kinds of infrastructures upon which they're contingent, yeah. and then um, are profoundly wrapped up with different forms of human, that, human in scare quotes, and that, yeah. you know, insofar as we might separate out the fleshy sacks that we walk around as. Yeah. Which again is a problematic distinction. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, when I, when people say algorithm to me, I mean, I, th- I find uh, artificial intelligence or AI as similarly problematic mm. because it can mean lots of different things, mm. and it's becoming more synonymous with neural networks and stuff yep. like that, which is uh, fine, but it's not the whole research plethora of, no, of artificial not. intelligence at all. Uh, it's just a, a certain subset. Um, whereas algorithms, in my head, I always see the Google page rank algorithm yeah. because that's that is definitely a singular algorithm. You could write it out as a mathematical equation, and it just so happens that that equation gets inputs and outputs, and that is manifest in a computer yeah. program. And it's you know you could probably write it out, and it wouldn't be yeah. too large. But that is uh, a part of this larger machine, which uh, yeah. effectively in Google, which is uh, many, many, many more algorithms. Um, or kind of smaller functions that all build this huge Goliath, almost. Um, Digging into that. um, Yeah, and there's been all sorts of arguments about definition. And um, again, that's political. That's about saying who has the authority to name things in various kinds of ways. I think that future, the future that um, is always just down the road, the horizon that that uh, operates at is quite elastic. It kind of stretches, it it kind of boomerangs backwards and forwards. So when Weiser was working, you know, he was he was talking maybe 10, 12, 15 years ahead. And then there are other contexts in which actually you know, the furthest ahead that these, some people might be thinking is like four yeah. or five years. Um, um, and that's contingent on all sorts of different kinds of pressures occurring in the kinds of business that are operating.